It's Monday night, and that means a brand new episode of Graphic Policy Radio, the show that mixes comics and politics. We're the show that will admit we have an open investigation on Lex Luthor. Uh, tonight, we've got a brand new guest who's going to be talking. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, a brand new guest. We're going topical with the, the opening. Uh, who hasn't been on the show before and has got a really awesome, cool, uh, say, small press series, indie series that you should be checking out. But before I introduce her and we start talking about the series, I want to introduce my co-host, Alana. How you doing? Hi. Um, you cut out a sec. Can you guys hear me okay? Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. can hear you totally fine. It might have been me. Oh, oh, okay, good. Great. Okay. Okay. So tomorrow, wait, no, I'm sorry. Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time, I'm hoping everyone will join me on Twitter because I am writing my very first tweet chat uh, for hashtag pop politics chat, where I'm bringing together fans of Ms. Marvel, um, America Chavez, who's new Ms. America, uh, and activists working on issues like immigration, um, uh, folks working in Muslim communities doing organizing work um, and folks doing all kinds of uh, forms of resistance to Trump. And we're all going to be talking on Twitter together about what is powerful about these stories and what activists can learn from comics in terms of how we communicate and how we develop powerful imagery and the importance of the comic narrative stories um, and the mythos. And I think that it's sort of, if you listen to this podcast, this tweet chat is right up your alley. It's a very graphic policy sort of a thing. Um, so it's going to be at, again, at 8.30 on Twitter. All you need to do is go to hashtag pop politics chat, like pop culture politics chat. And um, we're going to have a conversation. And I have a couple of featured tweeters like Desiree Rodriguez from the Nerds of Color and who also works at Lion Forge Comics. Ardo Amar from Women Write About Comics, Nalini Stamp, who like kind of started Occupy, but that's another story. Um, and yeah, we'll all be talking about comics and organizing and activism. So I hope you guys will join me there and have a really awesome conversation. Yes, and if you're listening to this after the fact, you can still read the tweets there because Twitter lasts forever. So that's what's up with me. <laughs> Thank yes. you guys. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be a really cool thing Wednesday. It's going to be uh, nice and awesome. People should go check it out. Uh, but we've got a guest tonight who's a first-time show talking about her new series, Heathen. Um, it's, I don't even know how to describe it. it what do you call this? Lesbian Viking oh, is the best way to really describe it. Yeah it's, yeah. it's definitely like Viking fantasy um comic and there's amazing lesbian i don't know if i can say what happened anything about the second issue but there's something else that i think fans are very excited about that would be in the second issue and um yeah natasha is someone who just sort of came and like suddenly we saw her on comicsology and it was one of those big new reads from a new creator and she's a writer and artist and we're really excited to have her on the show yep so uh natasha alterici is a uh uh, done tons of work, including uh, Heathen, what we're going to talk about, Dinosaur Project, Gotham Academy, uh, Yearbook, Grayson Annual, The Les Film Review. Uh, you should go check it out. Heathen, right now, it's being published by Vault Comics. The second issue is out this Wednesday. First issue came out last month. It's awesome. It's can't can't praise it enough. It's just it's really sweet. So welcome to the show, Natasha. 
Hello. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for coming on. And this really uh, is so been the, on our radar since I saw it at Comic Con, yeah. I guess, a couple uh, a while ago. As this was one of the Comicsology featured um, series, or, or, or how, how did the con come to be? Uh, yeah, uh, Comicsology did like a special like print versions of uh, of their of their top like uh, submit releases through the Comicsology submit program. And that was back when Heathen was just with um, Literati Press, which is a small publisher in Oklahoma. That's kind of where it got its start. Um, we were in print just like in a handful of mm-hmm. shops around Oklahoma. And then uh, we submitted it to Comixology just to see what would happen. And it kind of took off from there. So then Comixology did their thing. And we went to New York Comic Con. And we got to have print issues that we gave out to people. And it just sort of built and built. And now we're at Vault. And it's really exciting. <laughs> So how did you? So is this um, is this a mini series or is this a an ongoing or? Uh, yeah, I always planned it to be kind of a mini series. I have like twelve issues in mind, um, at least for Agus's part of the story. Um, but uh, you know, depending on how well it it goes after that, I mean, there's there's always room since most of the cast is immortal. There's always room for more. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> So one of the the questions we always ask with our guests is, how did you actually get into creating comics? Well, for me, um, it kind of started in college when I, uh, in my Comp 1 class, we were assigned to read uh, Mouse, uh, Art Spiegelman's Mouse. And uh, if you haven't read it, it's amazing. Um, But it was the first, like, comic book that I had to read or that I got to read that wasn't, like, about superheroes. And I didn't really know that comics could be something other than that. So uh, I sort of I sort of, kind of became obsessed with them after that. Um, and then in my senior year of college, I, I took a – I had a uh, independent study class where I, I decided to just – I'd been writing the story just in my free time, and I decided I'm going to make it a comic book. And I, I uh, worked on that just like a page at a time, like for the whole semester, got like 40 or 50 pages done for it. And it turned out well enough that I was like, maybe I should consider this a career thing. <laughs> That's incredible. Hey, you, how, how did you learn to draw? Like, most yeah. people don't even have that ability to start with. Oh, uh, well, I've been drawing since I could, like, hold a pencil. It's sort of been my lifelong passion. I always wanted to do something with art. I didn't know it was going to be comics, but uh, that's where I ended up. I think I was originally I was originally going to be like a, in films and stuff. I wanted to be. I saw Jurassic Park when I was like six years old, and I decided I was going to be uh, Steven Spielberg. I was going to make dinosaur movies. <laughs> That's awesome. With, did you study art and uh, did you study graphic arts or fine arts or in, in in college as well? Or right, yeah, I studied fine arts in college. We didn't really have like an illustration kind of program or even comics or anything like that. Uh, so I pretty much just learned, like, oil painting and watercolors and charcoal drawing and that kind of thing. Um, mm. Yeah, the independent study for the comic making, I just had to kind of make that up myself because I was just too interested in it to, like, let it go. It's like, well, I'll just make my own class for it. <laughs> I definitely feel like I can see the influence of you working with traditional materials first in your in your art, you know? Like, a lot of artists today mm-hmm. sort of start just digital drawing and sketching, and, and I definitely see the charcoal in your art. Right, yeah, I um, I, I I get that comment a lot. It's kind of got that sort of sketchy, sort of painterly kind of quality to it, which uh, I think I think is an advantage 
to like, you know, distinguish my work from a lot of other comics, not to like, you know, talk bad about other comics. I love, I, you know, I love how mm-hmm. everybody draws, but, but uh, I like that uh, there's something about mine that's, I guess, a little different. I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Definitely. I could recognize your work right away. And when I saw you in the Grayson annual writing that adorable story with John Constantine and Dick Grayson, something that I'm sure a lot of fans were very eager to hear about. Um, I was like, yep, this is her work. Recognize it right off the bat. So, <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was a very interesting project. Um, definitely the first project I had to do where I had to like sexualize a male body. So that was definitely a, a unique challenge. <laughs> I love how that, you, though, that that's sort of like, oh, right, let me look at this in a different way, because that's not usually how I mm-hmm. do things. Because you, you focus, right. Heathen is a female-focused story. It's, you know, it's a, it's, I, I mean, do you identify it as like a queer story or a lesbian story, or how, how do you identify the narrative, really? Well, I mean, Adis is clearly a lesbian, and um, we've got other characters that come along um, in the section, second issue, you know, we meet uh we meet some some interesting queer characters, I would say, um, and later on we have even more that come into the story. Um, it starts, you know, very small, you know, just with Adis. So, yeah, I think it's I think it's hard to you know disown Heathen from any kind of queer narrative. I mean, it's about a girl kicked out of her village for kissing another girl, so it's sort of central to the story. <laughs> mhm. Yeah. With- with the other series that you've worked on, like the the Grayson and and Gotham Academy, like how'd you wind up getting on those? Because you know, clearly you you jumped from doing this indie to I would say more like high high profile stuff with DC. Um, that was just sheer uh, luck. Um, an editor at DC just happened to to see Heathen, I think, on Comicsology, and just liked my style and just sent me an email one day and said, "Would you like to work on them?" Um, Gotham Academy, and I was just like, yes, please. <laughs> and then shortly afterwards, it was uh, Grace and Annual was offered to me. I was like, yes, please again. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm very thankful for that opportunity, too, because they were very different from, you know, Heathen, but let me sort of challenge myself and stretch my wings a little bit. I liked it. It was a fun project. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Those are definitely really good series from D.C., so it was, it was cool to yeah. sort of see that, that range and those different opportunities there. But I think it's mm-hmm. great. Like we can recognize your work when we see it. There's a lot of same same stuff that I see in comics, and that's rarely the stuff that I want to talk about. The stuff I want to talk about is stuff like yours that really stands out. So, right, like indie I, stuff. I, yeah, I, I think most of the most of the stuff I like to read is yeah, that kind of the, in the indie vein, and a little less superheroes and more just everything else. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it definitely feels like it's a, you know it's a fantasy story with a lot of mythology, Norse mythology. Um, uh, what was the inspiration for for setting your comic in that time and place? Well, um, it honestly got started when uh, a few friends of, m- of mine were going to the Renaissance Fair, and they invited me to go with them. And they were all dressing up. They had like various winch dresses and things like that uh, to wear, and. Um, they offered to lend me a winch dress, but I'm not exactly the dress kind, of, dress wearing kind of girl. So I, uh, I decided to make mm-hmm. my own costume, and I, I wanted to be a warrior of some sort. And I ended up sort of designing this sort of Viking barbarian looking costume, and uh, it turned out pretty, pretty okay, I guess, for somebody who doesn't do cosplay regularly. Um, I had like a little uh, leather helmet that has like paper mache horns on it and little fur things. 
And um, after the fair, I just kept, like, sketching the costume, like, over and over again, and it sort of evolved into this character. And I was like, well, she needs a story. So I wrote her a story, and that's that's kind of that's that's where it came from. Oh, that's so cool! You inspired yourself. <laughs> well, she inspired me. The character did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. for fans who are like hardcore Norse um, geeks, I assure you, I won't tell you how or why, but the fact that she has antlers on her helmet is explained in the second issue, which you'll have <laughs> to buy, which is on sale very soon. Um, right. <laughs> Yes, I understand that Vikings don't actually wear horns on their helmets. So I made sure to to let me know that I know that. <laughs> with like with that, ah, with the whole Viking people. Yeah, with the Viking Norse, you know, influence on it, when kinda of coming up with a story, you know, how'd you decide on kinda of like what you wanted to kind of pick and choose as far as, as that history? Like, you know, are there points where you're like, No, nah, I want to deviate? Is it kind of really trying to stick to, you know, that world and belief and idea of gods and stuff like that. I mean, like, how did you actually kind of balance that out and come up with it all? Um, well, I mean, you know, when I was, you know, designing the character, you know, I could tell that she was kind of, you know, picking up that sort of Viking uh, kind of look. So I wanted to, you know, research a little bit more about Norse mythology. I didn't, didn't know that much before I, you know, started working on the story. Um, and I just, you know, went down to the library and just found all the books I could and, read some various myths, like just looked for different characters and stuff in that, that time period, you know, the different gods and goddesses and immortals and uh, all those characters that already have stories that exist. And um, I discovered the story of Brynhild, who was, you know, the Valkyrie that was cursed and uh, forced to marry a mortal. And uh, for whatever reason, that story just kind of stuck with me and I, I couldn't let it go. And I imagined that Adis being a girl who was also sort of uh you know, in trouble for disobeying, you know, the, the leadership in her village or whatever. It, it it seemed like the kind of story that she would relate to. And so I, I wanted to find a way to kind of merge her story with Brynhild's story. And um, I also discovered this, this idea of, like, cyclical time in, in Norse mythology where, like, the stories kind of repeat themselves. And there's this idea of fate where it's not exactly set in stone, but it kind of is. And... Uh, so I just I wanted to see a version of the story where Brynhild, you know, is is rescued by a woman instead of, you know, the man. Uh, I just I just thought that that would be a very interesting kind of tale. I, I don't know the original story trope, yeah. like for me, because like you know, growing up in like ha- having mythology and having fairy tales and being queer, you sort of write yourself and your ideas into the stories and imagine how they would be different if you had, you know, same gender or a range of different gendered characters um, in those roles. Mm-hmm. And this is definitely feels like, I mean, I totally wish I had been able to, you know, grow up with this story, like actually being in print and available to me because it felt like the kind of thing that I had like, been, you know, like would daydream about when I would read stories in my Julia's book of Greek myths, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. Was that, yeah, I think it's a sort of childhood need from that too, or I would think so. I mean, um, I grew up, you know, in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma, where you know the only thing you really have are, are like stories on, and you know characters on TV and books and things that uh, you can sort of 
use to escape, you know. Um, and I honestly, I think, you know, for most of my childhood and even teenage years, I didn't really even understand what it meant to be gay. Um, I, I watched Ellen come out on TV, you know, the, the infamous moment where she leans in the microphone and says, I'm gay. And everybody thought it was, like, such a huge deal, but I still didn't, like, get what it meant. Um, it wasn't until, you know, I left my hometown and got to college and actually met some other people and, and figured out, oh, there's, like, this whole other world of things. And, yeah, so I think if I had grown up with some kind of story that, you know, it said, you know, explicitly, like, this is what gay means and also it's fine, that, I don't know, I don't know that my life would be any better or worse, but it, it would be different, I, I imagine might have, like, figured things out a little bit faster and maybe learned to, you know, find my community and things like that. You know, just the kind of things all kids need, I think. Yeah, definitely. With the series, like, how did you, um, you know, obviously it started off uh, with a local um, publisher. You moved on to Comixology. How did it eventually come to uh, Vault Comics? Uh, well, um, I had a, a good friend, Tim Daniel, who was, um, you know, a, a early fan of Heathen. I think he, I'm pretty sure he found it on Comixology, and we'd been Twitter friends for, like, a long time, and, you know, he, he shot me an email one day, you know, asking if uh, I'd be interested in, like, pitching it to uh, uh, Heavy Metal, and um, I ended up doing that and, uh, for a short while. Yeah. The plan yeah. was that it going to be published with Heavy Metal, they were doing a whole new run of comics, including one of Tim Daniels, and uh, then somewhere along the way, the whole thing kind of just dissolved, or I don't, I'm not sure what happened on the Heavy Metal end, but uh, I know most of the artists were, were, like, pulling back and saying, let's go somewhere else, but then Tim also, you know, discovered the guys at Vault Comics, and they were, you know, just getting started, you know, looking for books and stuff to launch this brand new publisher, and you know, they were very energetic and very excited and were like, yes, let's do this. And I was like, you know what, this sounds great, let's do it. So that's that's kind of a, how it ended up at Vault. And uh, Literati, the publisher from Oklahoma, was always, like, super supportive of, you know, finding a bigger publisher because, you know, their, their means were limited and they're always going to be, like, a smaller publisher. They didn't have the desire to get, like, bigger. And so they, they let Heathen go with its blessing, and I've been very thankful for all of their help. That's really nice of them. It's like really cool that they're willing to do that and are kind of so supportive. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they're still a big part of Heathen. Um, you know, most of the people that work there are editors also on Heathen, so they're still involved in the story, and you know, they they still love it. So that's great. <laughs> Is the like that's what's really the. Cool. T- I mean, Literati sounds like it's a, like a really local, kind of like an Oklahoma publisher. Is that right? I don't really actually know a whole right. lot about them. Is there, like, what's the comic scene like in that area? Well, they're based out of uh, Oklahoma City. And, yeah, they've, okay. they've put out, like, a few. Um, they did, like, a Literati Presents where they just asked, like, local artists and, and writers to, to put together little comics or illustrated stories or, or even just uh, short poems or anything, just sort of highlighting the artists and stuff in the area because, um, Oklahoma's not exactly famous for its like art enthusiasm, but the yeah. literati group is at least like one one set of people that are super excited about you know promoting the arts and promoting writing and, and trying to share good stories and select the talent you know that's in here because there is a lot um, even if we don't have like the wider support of like maybe New York or California or wherever we still have you know a pretty good little art scene. 
that's really cool. I'm gonna have to check and that out. Primarily, I wasn't even aware of it. Is it based out of mostly Oklahoma City, the more art-focused city of Oklahoma, or where's the scene for that? Yeah, I would say Oklahoma City. I mean, I'm in Tulsa myself, and there's you know a little bit here. Uh, we've got a couple of you know really awesome little comic shops and, and galleries and stuff, but Oklahoma City is probably more like more vibrant art scene. What do you like about uh, the sort of small town art scene thing? Like, I think it definitely has some real advantages, and I, I'm always interested in, in those sorts of those sorts of cultural factors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely kind of a, a sense of uh, uh, loyalty, you know, because, I mean, Oklahoma is not exactly famous for its, like, you know, arts and progressive ideas and things like that. So anytime you find anybody else in the state that, you know, isn't, like, uh, wearing a red hat or anything, you're you're just super excited. And we're like, yes, you and me, let's stick together. <laughs> we're going to buy each other's books and we're going to promote each other's arts and all that kind of thing. So it's it's, it's a great community, I think especially, you know, for a small-town kid who, you know, ended up in the city. It's like, oh, there are other people like me. Hooray. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you're definitely in a city, which I presumably is, you know, like it's probably fairly progressive. But, like, have there been any weird responses to the comic being lesbian characters, like from adults who don't freaking get it? Or, I mean, honestly, not as much as I expected there to be. Um, I kind of expected there to be a little bit more, um, I guess, I think, I think Oklahoma is, like, fairly polite about things like that. Like, whenever we would do conventions, um, at least, you know, back when I was with Literati, I would, you know, have people come up to the tel- table and I'd tell them what Heathen was about, that it was about a lesbian Viking and she was on a mission to take down a, a corrupted god. It would sometimes get like an odd look, but you know, usually they just kind of walk on and not buy the book. But most people were actually pretty excited about it, and uh, that was always like reassuring. I was like, okay, so there is a market for this. There's people like that want these kind of stories, so it it at least made me feel not so alone. <laughs> I was I was pleasantly right. surprised. I like. Yeah, yeah. I think like I I think it's just a really cool comic and it's good to see it getting that support from, from people in general. Um, is the, are, are there any other projects that you are moving on uh, at different, at the same time, or I know this is like amazing to be doing your own comics art and, and writing the whole series too is like huge, but yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I do have like one other side project that's like my main focus right now, and that's the Les Film Review, which uh, I just launched on Patreon, and it's uh, sort of a semi-weekly uh, comic where I'm trying to find and compile like a complete catalog of every lesbian film ever, and then review them like in comic book form, and uh, I found almost 200 movies. And I've watched about half of those, and I've reviewed like a handful so far. Uh, we just launched it back in January, and I'm hoping I can, you know, keep it going long enough that I can review all the movies and all the movies that are made, you know, after my list was made. <laughs> so that's that's been an interesting little side project. <laughs> that's an impressive undertaking. <laughs> what got what got you wanting to yeah, do like, that specific? Where that idea come from? Well, um, there's just a a few years back when I was 
you know, I was, you know, first coming out and, you know, figuring out my sexuality and everything, and I did what any introverted person would do and go look for movies. Um, so the the one movie I found was, like, um, uh, Black Swan and Jennifer's Body, which are two, you know, kind of technically lesbian movies, I would say, um, but maybe mm-hmm. not officially. Um but then I was like, well, aren't there more movies than this? There have to be more movies than this. And I would, you know, search online and I would find, like, the same, like, ten or so really crappy movies repeated, like, over and over. Like, watch these. They're the best, the best ever, the best lesbian films. And I'd watch them and be like, these are terrible movies. There have to be some good ones somewhere. So I kind of got obsessed and started just, like, scouring um, the web I- and, and video stores and libraries, just wherever I could go. in and out find right now. Anything. Is it, is it is it on my end or are you hearing it okay, Brett? I, I think it's on your end. Oh shoot. Okay, I will be quiet then. <laughs> Oops. Oh good. You guys hear me? It right. happens. Mm-hmm. Where'd you Where'd you even like compile that list? Because that's a, like two hundred movies is a hell of a list to, to put together. It It took quite a long time. I was probably like putting together a list over like several months. I had. You know, I put calls out on, like, Twitter and stuff and just ask people, I'm like, is there any, like, random lesbian movie you've seen or any movie that has even just, like, one little side character that's a lesbian or any movie that could, could very technically be called a lesbian movie, just, like, anything that maybe would count as a lesbian film, and I would, I promise to review it, just to at least watch it and confirm whether, yes, there is a lesbian or not, and then, you know, judge the rest of the movie. Um, but, yeah, it took, it took a long time. It was, a, it was a lot of trips to video stores, a lot of, like, library searches, and I went through, like, all the all the streaming services, Netflix and HBO and Hulu and Amazon Prime. Maybe I got a Prime account just so I could, like, watch all the movies that were there, too, and uh, lots of foreign films. Um, it's a, yeah, it, it took a long, long time. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I've been trying to think. Of, there's a similar project I want to do with comic films not to do like comic uh, strips reviewing it, but I think there's something like there's a couple hundred already out and I'm like, Oh, this is going to be such a, I don't even want to think about going through all that. It's going to be completely crazy to, to review everything. So the fact that you've gotten through half of it already is really <laughs> impressive to me. If that's the daunting I mean, thing, I'm, only- I'm like, well, if I do one a week, that's going to take me a couple of years. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, 200 movies, one week, that's at least, like, three or four years. <laughs> I see. I guess I sort of come out of from doing, like, being, going to a lot of experimental film stuff in the city, where we'd go to, like, Mix Fest, which is, like, the annual big queer experimental film festival, and so many of those mm-hmm. films are shorts, so it's like, well, there's these really short ones you could add to your list now, too, haha. But yeah, a lot of it's pretty yeah. experimental stuff, so it's a kind of a different category of its own. Right. Yeah, I do have like a handful of like shorts that I included just because they were like particularly good, or they were like collected into like anthologies that would count as like a feature-length film. And I have a few like made-for-TV kind of movies. The only thing I'm not really including are like TV series because I just don't have time to watch like entire series of shows. So. But yeah, just just a lot of movies. But I'm like, I've always been kind of a movie file. I always just want to watch movies all the time. So that's the easy part. I don't know why when you said like made for TV movies, I've got this like 
shudder in my head of like these really cheesy bad films that go in the completely oh, yeah. wrong direction of every yeah okay it's that sort of level that we're talking about oh yeah quite a few of them are bad but there's surprisingly <laughs> a lot more good ones than I was expecting like a lot more good ones and I'm surprised that they haven't made these like so-called best of lists list that I kept finding online I was like why is nobody talking about this movie it's amazing or you know really I that that was like the biggest like you know just like offense to me I was just like this is ridiculous nobody is appreciating this amazing movie I will make sure other people appreciate it I will write a review <laughs> <laughs> I would have totally lost that bet if you were like out you know these going to be good or bad I'd be like oh they're all horrible they, I I will put money that they're all horrible so glad I didn't take that bet uh, <laughs> right and this is on Kickstarter uh, right now to support the project? It's on Patreon. Uh, Patreon.com slash like Les, Les Film Review. L-E-Z. Let me, I will find it and I will tweet it out for folks. Um, Check it out. Back to, yeah. Uh, back to comics. You know, you have, you've done indie, you've done, you know, stuff for DC. You know, when it comes to to doing the two different, you know, how is it for you as a creator, kind of working on your own or working working within like the DC? I don't even know what you call it, not really the juggernaut, but the machine. I guess would be the great way of of describing it. Well, I mean, the two main differences are just like the pay and the and the schedule. Because uh, when you're working with, you know, a big publisher like DC, you know, they're going to pay you really well, but they're also going to expect it to be done really fast. Um, when you're working on your own, you may or may not see any money at all, but also you can take as much time on it as you want. Like the the first issue of Heathen, I probably spent like maybe a year working on it. I just kind of kept, you know, redrawing like the first three pages over and over or, you know, putting it off or rewriting it and starting over and things like that. But, you know, when I did my you know, uh, short for Grayson, I think I had like maybe a month. So I was like, all right, this is how it has to be done. I got to get it done. <laughs> those are, those are the big differences I would say. And, um, just, just a lot of, just a lot of like, you know, you have an editor, you have somebody who gives you feedback. And I think in that respect, you know, you, you, you end up making something better than you thought you could because they push you to kind of make it better. Um, versus when you do it by yourself, you can sometimes, either get too perfectionist about it and uh, never finish it or you'll get too lazy about it and then you just produce something that's subpar because you don't have anybody, you know, giving you any sort of feedback on it. It's a whole different monster. <laughs> but with, with the time frame, like, how long did you actually have to do uh, the, the DC ones? Because it sounds like it was really short. Well, I think the the Gotham Academy one, I had I had a little bit more time just because I got to write it myself and do the art on it. So I think I had, you know, a couple of months to work on it. Like, I think I was contacted in, like, January, and it was due in March or so. But uh, the, the Grayson one was a, a little bit shorter timeline, but somebody else had done the writing already, so all I had to do was produce the pages. So I had about a, about a month or so, I think, on that one. can't exactly remember, but it wasn't wasn't as long as I would normally give myself to work on on an issue, so I had to buckle down and set a schedule and everything, which is odd, you know, like working from home. A lot of people think, oh, you just get to do whatever you want all day, but I'm like, oh, no, I have to, like, I have to, like, make a schedule off. I'll, I'll not do anything, and then I'll not get anything done, and then I won't be able to eat. <laughs> yeah. Working from home, yeah, I, I can tell you. It's, it's 
it's very easy to go shiny object route, but I also am very easy mm. to go shiny object route. So, uh, <laughs> oh, I ended up watching there... hundred legends. <laughs> <laughs> that's multitasking. That's that's what put that into multitasking. Although yeah. speaking uh, of that, like, do you have like a soundtrack or visual references for getting you into? Like lesbian Viking fantasy story story making mode. Um, is there like a is there a heathen playlist? Um, well, for heathen specifically, no. I mean, I I have like my carefully curated iTunes like uh, selection, which is mostly Queens of the Stone Age and sleigh bells and uh, a lot nice. of Portis head and things like that. But um, mm-hmm. you know, it's just. Anything I feel like I can either bang my head to or, or dance to or just, like, zone out to. That's kind of my criteria for music. But uh, as far as, like, visuals, I did, I did like, do a lot of research, like, into, like, other depictions of, like, Norse fantasy stuff. You know, I looked at, like, Lord of the Rings and, and Skyrim and, you know, uh, different films and stuff like that. But I think in the end I, I decided to stop looking at that kind of stuff because I didn't want to make something that looked too much like the generic sort of uh, fantasy look. Um, I, I definitely wanted to, you know, at least have like furs and leather and like winged helmets and, and then everything else would just be whatever I thought looked cool. So. <laughs> <laughs> cool, cool. I just was thinking there's, um, there's like the, the, the big uh, Viking metal fest. Um, like they totally need to start selling your comics on tour now. I've realized this would be important for all the Viking metal bands for Pagan Fest. I mean, it's called Pagan Fest, right? So they should totally right. be selling Heathen on tour. Um, I, I I totally want you to do covers now for the Viking metal band albums. I'm gonna. <laughs> That'd be awesome. I'm not like, my name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I don't know those bands, but we go to enough shows. Like <laughs> I should totally hook you guys <laughs> together somehow. Um, that's super cool, though. Yeah, I definitely like thought a lot about music and accompaniment, sort of, as I was reading the story. I think the first issue you have, there's, you know, is the first issue doesn't have as much dialogue in it in some ways as the second one. So there's sort of like mm-hmm. space for a soundtrack in mind, at least for me when I, when I, when I was reading it, when I was reading it, I I don't know, like, I don't want to spoiler anything about the second issue, but can I say to folks what the two uh, entities, not that mm, I should have cleared this with you because I'm scared. I'm going to like say it elliptically. So elliptically that you won't know what I'm saying. Um, (laughs) The two characters on the cover of the second issue, the second issue is covers with two particular animals on it. Can I say that they, um, Okay, guys, like the second, <laughs> the second issue has two wolves having a conversation, and they are the most wolf conversation in the history of wolves, and it, you guys have Loved to read it. it. Like yes. wolves being wolves yeah. is amazing. They, a, a they plus were plus like wolf dialogue. <laughs> they were surprisingly fun to write. Um, I, I wasn't exact. I, I knew I, that they had to be involved in the story because, you know, um, you know, when you're confronting a god, there will eventually be, you know, some talk of like Ragnarok or whatever. That's just the thing in Norse mythology. It always comes up. And so I was like, well, we got to involve the the wolves, uh, Skull and Haiti, who are, you know, supposed to bring about Ragnarok. 
Um, but then I thought to myself, I was like, these two wolves that have, like, nothing to do until the end of the world. I was like, they feel like they would be awfully bored. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I just, <laughs> I just wanted to see a couple of wolf brothers just being bored and annoyed with each other and uh, having fun. <laughs> and adorable and weird and perfect. I loved them. They were great. Awesome. I mean, there's, you know, the, 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 and the horse has his own voice and his own personality and dialogue too. So you definitely have a lot of interesting animal characters voicing themselves through the story. Right. Yeah. Uh, Saga being uh, a talking character too was, you know, again, spoilers, but I think I've mentioned it enough on Twitter that people understand, but he is, he also talks, uh, not to ages. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I always imagine him just having a little bit of attitude. Um, they're just like a, like a, like a cat or something. (laughs) (laughs) Like smart enough to like, know, you know, know his place, but also like resent it a little bit. Like, like a cat would, I think. That's, that's what I imagine. It's just like a a cat that you ride. (laughs) That sounds like a good idea. I would like to have a riding cat. I'm looking at mine right now, and he's like, you best not be thinking that. Um, that's great. Yeah, like, I definitely feel like there's a lot of personality in the animals, and the animal designs and bodies are all really interesting, the way you've done the art for them, too. I think a lot of people just don't have experience. Like, there's a lot of people who are like, they, they do animals, and then there's other people who do people. And people who do animals and people seem to be sort of few and far between. Right. Um, well, you know, when I was little, like, the only thing I wanted to draw was, was just animals. And then when I got to college and got into, like, figure drawing classes, well, then all I wanted to draw was people. And uh, I, don't, I, th- I don't think I've ever learned to draw, like, cars or stuff in between. So I'm just hoping nobody ever asked me to draw a car because I, I still haven't learned how to do that. <laughs> well, there won't be any cars in this story, at least. So you have that much Hopefully cover. not. Yeah. <laughs> Although speaking of figure drawing, I feel like one of the things that's really iconic in the character's look is the way you draw her body. You know, she's very mm-hmm. wiry and very right. physical. And I don't, you know, you just don't see that nearly often enough in comics. And I think it's important because it mm-hmm. sells her strength and her youth. Yeah. Yeah. I always, I always pictured Adis as just being kind of like, scrawny, just sort of this person that like the Viking people would underestimate because she's sort of maybe underfed looking to them or, you know, she's, she can't bear children. She's too little or, you know, she's got that poochy belly and, and just skinny little arms, but, you know, she uses her wits and her, you know, skill with the bow to like, you know, get herself out of trouble. And I think that that's, that's perfect for her. Mm-hmm. I think when a lot of artists, when they draw every female character who's supposed to be desirable as having an identical body to one another, they're really losing out mm-hmm. on the opportunity to have characterization, right? Like, there's a reason why yeah. your character is built the way she is, and there's a reason why the goddess is built in a different way that she is. Like, it's part of their personality mm-hmm. and their character, and it's more visually interesting. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I, I do like the idea of having just sort of this, this variation in what is, you know, desirable, you know, because, I mean, for me, even as a, a lesbian, like, I don't think about, you know, the way a person looks. I think about, like, what's in their head and stuff. And I like that, you know, Adis is smart and that she's, you know, strong-willed and, you know, she's not going to take anybody's crap, not even a, a bull charging at her. Um, you know, she's going to think everything through and then uh, find a way to, like, solve a problem. And that is what I think is, like, desirable about her, 
Um, meanwhile, like, you know, the goddess of love or whatever, she's just in love with everybody. And, and uh, no matter what she looks like, she's she's just uh, a person that exudes affection and, and uh, desire. And she just, whatever she sees in other people is what's the best about them. And so she's just in love with everybody she meets. And that was what I wanted to, like, like purvey about her. Um, and then you have Bryn Hild, who's, you know, just made by a god. So he's so she's, like, more classically beautiful, I would say. You know, she's a little bit more voluptuous and, and you know, has the cheekbones and everything. But I think that that's, you know, part of her character because a god made her that way. And so it kind of makes sense story-wise to, to make her more mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. When Definitely. I was say, when designing all the characters, did you kind of go through different? Because it sounds very thought out. Um, did you go through different iterations of them to kind of get their looks as is? Yeah, I certainly did. I have um, sketchbooks just filled with variations on them. Um, Adis, you know, she was always kind of like skinny and scrawny, and uh, she had you know different different horns and stuff on her helmet. But her her costumes pretty much remained the same because that was the costume that I designed to wear to Rin Fair. Um, it's not the one I ended up wearing, but that's the one I designed. Um, and mm-hmm. then uh, Freya, I think I always just imagined her mostly nude just because she's a god and, and she's, you know, sexy and she doesn't, like, care. She has nothing to, like, worry about from anybody because she's a god. She could, like, kill somebody if they tried anything or whatever. So I was like, I, I just imagined her having no reason to want to wear clothes. And then uh, for Bryn Hild, you know, I wanted her to have the the armor and stuff, but uh, her look kind of evolved a little bit too because I kind of went back and forth between making her a little more revealed, a little less revealed, a little more voluptuous, a little less voluptuous. I wanted her in the end to just sort of look like she was uh, very strong-minded and and a leader because that's what she was. She was the the queen of the Valkyries at one point, so I wanted her to retain that kind of strength. That was the most important part for her is just to get the strength Hmm. Interesting. How long? Like, how much? Um, how long did it take you to actually come up with their final designs for each of the characters? Well, um, well I would say, you know, like I said, the, that first issue kind of took like a year to make, and it was probably because I just kept reworking all the different <laughs> characters and the story and everything. So, probably, yeah, that full year I was working on all the all the elements together and trying to bring it together into a cohesive story. So yeah, maybe, maybe about a year then. Hmm. It's just so few writers like, artists these days do like a whole self-contained book all by, all by, all by themselves really. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I just, it's sort of, it's sort of almost an astonishing amount of work to do when I, when I think about it. Right. Yeah, well, when I was, you know, working on that first issue, I I had, like, a job, like, on the side. I wasn't doing comics really full-time. Heathen was going to be, like, the first comic that I did, um, like, that I was going to try to publish anyway. I'd done a couple, like, indie things before that, just, you know, flexing my wings, just testing things out, um, working with other writers and stuff. But Heathen was the first one that I wanted to write and illustrate myself. And so, yeah, I took my time on it. I really wanted to, like... Like prove myself, I guess. <laughs> well, Do you have any tips for folks who want to go and make their own comic now, like based on this like really hard fought experience of yours? 
Um, yeah, I mean, just uh, just put in time every single day. You know, if you wanna if you wanna draw comics, you've got to draw every single day, um, whether you want to or not. That's that's always the the hard part. Um, I I find a lot of people who uh, um, I guess are, are not quite or just amateurs when it comes to art. Um, they only want to draw when they feel inspired. Um, they're always like looking for inspiration, and I'm like, well, sometimes you have to just find it. If you want to do it as a job, you've got to like seek it out. Uh, so just like make yourself draw. Sometimes it'll suck, but like the more you do it, the better you get naturally. So practice, you know, will will naturally improve you. And then I think the same goes for writing too. You just got to like make time for it. Um, and just, you know, stay true to what you're passionate about. That's the most important part. What were some of the, the lessons that you've picked up from uh, after doing the first issue? Because I imagine the second isn't taking you the same time it took the first. Um, but, like, what um, you know, what have you learned? Yeah, um, I think, you know, I mean, doing Heathen kind of taught me sort of like the, I mean, besides um, just, like, storytelling techniques and, and you know, learning how to craft a, a, a comic, I, I learned to kind of, like, make that schedule for myself. Like I was saying earlier, I the the first issue, you know, took, like, a year or whatever just because I was messing around with it, not really sure if I was going for it or not. But then, you know, the second issue, whenever we, we had already had the first issue out in print and we were like, yeah, let's continue it, the second issue took maybe, like, two months or so. And then after that, I was getting it, getting it down to about, you know, five weeks for, like, each, each issue, um, writing and art included and so it was just a practice in in discipline and and learning the the flow of it you know what comes first and what comes next and how to how to put it out in time with the you know obviously you've learned a a bunch from the the first issue on when you went to go from uh you know self-published to comiXology to heavy metal to vault you did were you tempted at all to maybe go back and tweak that first issue at all Mm. I was I was tempted actually since it's you know it's been almost like two or three years now since that first issue was drawn and I think about like the the like last issue of those um, first four that were done uh, the like the fourth issue definitely looks a lot different than the first issue but at the same time I kind of liked that about it. I kind of like that it's sort of, you can see the evolution of, of the art. Like you can see me sort of like learning how to draw a comic book. Um, but it sort of sort of fits the story too because you see Ada sort of like just branching out from her hometown and she's like learning how to be a warrior and learning how to confront gods and demons and things like that and, and how she's going to try to like change the world. And it's, it's sort of like felt right in that, like for the art style to reflect that so I I even though I wanted to maybe I'm tempted to like just redraw the whole first issue I think it it just works so I, I left it I let it be true mm-hmm. and I didn't feel like it was jarring really you know it just did feel like a continuation mm-hmm. I, I haven't right. noticed anything yeah. between the two so <laughs> I like I can tell because I know, but you know a lot of people just say it sort of kind of naturally changes, and I'm like, well, that's good enough. <laughs> You'll take it. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> um, with the when you went from um, 
from the the public, you know, the the print published to digital. Uh, was there any like as a creator when you start looking at things of digital comics? You know, obviously it's not wasn't a digital first series, so it's a little bit different. But did you start thinking that okay, this is going to be on Comicsology for future comics? You might have to tweak some of the storytelling a little bit. Um, well, I mean, not really because, you know, the Comixology, like the app, like the way that they, you know, format everything, they're, they're very good at like, um, like making it readable and everything on their end. So as long as it looks good in print, then it's, it's going to look dig- good digitally because, uh, yeah, just the people at Comixology do such a good job. They do that guided view thing where they zoom in on the panels yeah. and everything. And, um, yeah, so I you honestly have less to worry about, I think, as long as it, you know is readable text and everything. <laughs> but what, like, how about the actual storytelling itself? I know some folks might do like the transitions a little bit and, and think about some of that stuff. Um, yeah, obviously it's, it's print first, but you know, it's interesting in that, you know, comics have changed so much from, from print to digital to hear how creators might be thinking about that, that it, it is there is differences between reading the the two, you know, reading a print comic, reading a digital comic, reading it by panel, reading it page digitally. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as a creator for you, like, is that that's not even like, not even thinking about that. No, I don't. I don't think that ever really like crosses my mind. I just mostly want like, you know, as long as the individual panels look good and then the the page as a whole looks good, then. That's that's good enough for me. <laughs> I always wanted to. I, I think I think about my comments a little bit more, like if I was watching a movie and like how I would expect you know a scene to be framed in a film or something. Uh, that's kind of mostly what I think about when it comes to like you know organizing things on the page and 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 setting up the shots and everything. Um, yeah, I don't know. That probably goes back to just being like a cinephile, just watching too many movies and feeling like I know everything about it. <laughs> cool. I definitely feel like some comics just do not read well online and they're not designed for it and that's okay. And the others I think like yeah. are a lot better for screen time. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. and in some I ways it's the two page splash mm-hmm. problem is part of it, oh. but it's, yeah. it's not only the two page splash problem. Like this month's issue of of um, the Wicked and the Divine, which is one of my favorite comics, I Love there was like a complex multi-panel setup um, of dialogue between several different scenes, and it just was hard to read digitally. But on print, it was like mm-hmm. great and perfect. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I see. I see what you're talking about. Yeah. I think. I think I probably just like don't ever get that like creative or or complicated with my panel setup, so that I usually don't run into problems like that. Um, <laughs> you know, I think so far in Heathen, I've only had like one two page spread, and it's like right at the beginning, um, like the second and third page of issue one. I don't think I've had any other ones yet. So uh, yeah, it's it's yeah, I haven't run into that yet. <laughs> when when so I'm to be here. more creative. <laughs> nah, I, I, no, it's I working think it's in awesome your favor for the digital yeah. sales, at least. So, yeah. Yep. When, put, when putting together the series, like, how do you, how do you actually do it um, yourself since, you know, you are 
writing it and doing the art? You know, are you scripting it before? Or are you scripting it as you go? Yeah, I've got some. I, I try to get the scripts done, you know, a couple months ahead of whenever I'm, you know, scheduled to do the art. Um, I have, like, a copious amount of notes and stuff for each, like, issue and, like, each volume and, like, where the story is headed. You know, anytime I get an idea of a scene or something, you know, I write it down and uh, keep all that stuff together. And then when I go to actually write the issue, you know, I, you know, have the understanding I've got 22 or 24 pages to do it in and uh, try to try to make it work from there. But then once I have the script done, I usually am drawing, like, some other issue at the same time. So, like, right now I'm writing issue eight, I think, and then I've got issue five that I'm currently drawing. So I have to sort of like reread, you know, some old issues or something to catch myself back up to where I'm at, you know, for whichever one I'm working on. Um, but then, you know, I'll do all the art and I'll do all the coloring and stuff. And then I have, I now have uh, Rachel Deering doing the lettering. So that's like one, one thing that's off my plate, which I did myself under the original run of the series, which uh, I got a lot of comments about how the lettering wasn't very readable, so I was like, I think I'll hire somebody to do that part. That's a that's a, a science that I had never got a chance to learn, so <laughs> glad I could hire someone. So you don't. It's actually really interesting. You're, you, so it sounds like you don't actually work on like one issue at a time. That while you're doing the art for one, you're actually scripting another. Right. Yeah. I've got to. I've got to like stay ahead that way because if I was if I had to draw the same issue that I was writing, like, like at the same time, I would, I would never get it done. And I want to have a lot more time for the writing side of it, just uh, because like the art part, it comes a little bit more easily once you've got a good script to work from. So I want to spend as much time on the script as I need to, to get it right. And then once it comes down to drawing, I'm just like, okay, here's what's happening. Get, get drawn. And, uh, that, that you can do a little bit quicker, I think, than the writing part. Just for me, I've always, you know, felt more comfortable with art than than the writing side. So, hmm. interesting, very interesting. Yeah, it's definitely not what I usually hear from folks. That's that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I I don't know yeah, if I could I just, do the two. <laughs> right. I think it just comes from, you know, I've been drawing for like my whole life, but I've only been writing, you know, for a few years. So I still, I still have trouble calling myself a writer, except that I do it now for a living. So I'm like, oh, yes, I guess I am. <laughs> Who are the big artist influences on your own work, do you think? Oh, gosh, there's like so many. Um, I really love, well, uh, the first like when I was first getting into comics and uh, I was, I was, I read all the like big, you know, graphic novels that everybody tells you to read. But then I uh, wanted to just go browse a a comic shop and and look for, you know, other women who worked in comics. So I remember walking into the store and just asking the guy behind the counter, I was like, so are there any comics written or drawn by women? And he just gave me like this blank stare. He had no idea. So I was like, okay, I'll (sighs) figure it out then. And I, I happened to find uh, Saga when it was, like, first coming out. Like, the first issue was on the shelf, and uh, I saw the name Fiona, and I was like, oh, okay, that's the lady, Fiona Staples. And uh, so, yeah, she has been uh, a, a huge influence just because, you know, she was the first female artist I discovered in comics. Um, but other than that, you know, I love, uh, well, Jim Bartell and Tess Fowler and Tamara Bonvillian that worked that have done covers for us are all really fantastic artists. Um, I also mm-hmm. really love Ashley Wood. 
Ashley Wood does, he did a bunch of, uh, like, uh, zombies versus robots and, you know, yeah. I didn't care for the story, but I love, I love the crazy art, the real sketchy style and stuff. And, um, just, the robot there's, versus there's, like, zombie too, stuff? Yes, yes, that stuff. It's just ridiculous. I, <laughs> when I saw the Jen Bartel cover, I just, like, screamed at how gorgeous it was. It was such a cool combination to see you guys working together on that. Loved it. Oh, yeah, I had like a. Jen. Whenever the vault guys asked, you know, if if there were you know any artists I wanted to reach out to 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 do uh, variant covers, I had like a, a dream list of of people I wanted to work with, and she was right at the top, and I was just thrilled that she was actually available to do one. I was like, oh, I was expecting her to be busy. Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> and this is the second. This is the this comic has been re-released again, right? You sold out, and now they have to do a whole new printing. Yeah, they they actually sold out like the first day I think or like within I don't know yeah from Diamond they sold out like on the first day I think so we had to go to a second printing and that's when we decided to get uh, Jen on board to do that variant cover for the second printing that's really tremendous I mean most comics from indie publishers like you're not going to sell out on the first day unless it's like a very famous person so I think it goes to show how big an appetite there is for the stories that you're telling you know right I think I think we benefited from having like the audience from before. From you know we did a we did a Kickstarter to try to fund the first volume, and and we had it in local shops for a long time, and it was on Comicsology for a while. So I think we definitely benefited from that like previous fan base, and I'm just like happy that they're like patient enough to like rebuy the first issue and wait for the next ones that they've been waiting on for like a year now. So I hope that the wait will be worth it for them. But I also think it speaks to, you know, the appetite that fans have for more comics that are by women. Um, people talk mm-hmm. a lot about female characters, but they don't really necessarily focus as much on female creators. And it's so good to have a lesbian character written by and drawn by, like, both of those things by a lesbian artist, because you have a specific perspective that's being brought to bear. Um, and, like, I can read something without wondering if I'm being objectified in, like, a creepy straight guy way because it's, like, through a lesbian perspective, you know? Right. Yeah, I know that there are times when I'm working on the book that I sometimes wonder, I'm like, am I, like, objectifying her because technically I'm a lesbian and I'm supposed to be attracted to every lady, so, oh, I hope I'm not. And I'm like, I hope nobody reads it that way, but whatever. I'm I'm just happy that the book exists, too, because it's a book that I needed to exist. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm glad other people are responding well enough. Well, I think it's different. I mean, you, you're not going to objectify your own characters. Like, even if you draw somebody and you're like, wow, this is incredibly sexy, like, that's part of their character, part of their personality. And it's not like it just exists outside of them and they're just an object. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can understand that. I, I still have the worry, but, you know, I I, I, I trust that I'm, I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> Yeah, I just, I truly have faith that even if you were just, like, drawing, like, Dream Woman, it's still, like, it's not objectification because you're having her as a character with a personality and a context in the story and how she's being drawn as a reflection of that personality. And you're not kind of coming at this with, like, the eye of, like, I am the person who decides what everybody else must be attracted to and who establishes the norms of beauty in a culture. Like you have a perspective that's not 
the official sanctioned perspective of like patriarchy and capitalism. So in and of itself, you drawing, even what you do find beautiful is subversive. That's my two cents. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I, you know, I've been a fan for a while and I'm glad we were able to make this happen. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was great talking to you guys. We always ask well, before, our fans. I'm so, yep. sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go for it. Uh, okay. As I was gonna say, uh, you know, before we we wrap up, we always like to give our guests uh, the the platform to tell people where they can find them online and pitch pretty much anything. You know, we've talked about even, but if there's other stuff you want to pitch. Uh, the floor is yours. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, absolutely. Go get Heathen. It comes out, the second issue is coming out on Tuesday. We've got the uh, variant cover by Jim Bartell. You can order right now, um, and those will be out, I think, in April. Um, and then uh, the Les Film Review on Patreon. You want to check that out. It's a weird, crazy project, but it's interesting. And then uh, you know everything else is on my website, alterec.com. And I'm on all the usual places, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera. <laughs> cool. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's actually been really cool, and uh, I mean, it's a, a fantastic series. Um, you know, to, to, to see it getting a, a higher profile and getting out there is fantastic, and congrats on, on selling out. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Thank you again. We'll definitely have to have you on again to, to talk about future projects. Absolutely. I would enjoy it. All right. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, so that's going to wrap up another episode. Um, Alana, if you want to remind people about what's coming up Wednesday that they should be participating in. That's right. On Wednesday, we're going to be talking about Kamala Khan, a.k.a. Ms. Marvel, America Chavez, a.k.a. Ms. America, and uh, the relationship of America's favorite Latina, queer Latina, and Muslim American superhero women uh, in the context of opposition to Trump in America today, superheroes in comics and in the streets. And if you are interested in any of the above questions of how we can use superheroes in activism, how comics storytelling is powerful agent for change, and also if you want to figure out ways that you can get involved with fighting the power, as it were, in your own community. Um, We want you to join us on Twitter at 8.30 p.m. on Wednesday. Hashtag politics chat. Um, And you can always find that through me. I'm E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. Um, And uh, I'll be tweeting about that, and you can join me and my fellow uh, folks having that conversation at 8.30 on Wednesday. And if for some reason you miss it then because you're working or what have you, we will still be there talking about that conversation. You can chime in later. We'd love to get your thoughts. Excellent. Uh, And if you want to get more details on that, we've got an article up at graphicpolicy.com where you can go read about it and find out more why you should get involved and what it's all about. So you can go do that. And if you are listening to this show or into comics, comic news, Etc. Etc. You should go check us out at graphicpolicy.com. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook and Tumblr and YouTube, all at Graphic Policy, keeping it nice and consistent. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. You'll be able to check that out up on uh, uh, Blog Talk Radio. We'll 
have the uh, text of that, and you'll find out what we're going to be doing later this week. Uh, if you came into this episode late, want to listen to it again, share it with friends, you can do that. It'll be on iTunes and Stitcher in like you know, a couple hours. You should go and give it a nice five-star rating, please. And then if you'd like it on the go, you can obviously download it from iTunes and Stitcher, or you can get it from SoundCloud, where it'll be tomorrow, uh, probably in the morning or early afternoon, and then up on graphicpolicy.com. Again, you can listen to it again, share it with friends, and take it with you on the go. So as always, thank you so much for listening, and until next time, I'm Brett. I'm Ilana. Keep it geeky.